Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, It's around noon on a Tuesday in January. Patrick Payton, the newly sworn in mayor of Midland, strolls up to a podium beneath an arch of red and white balloons. The Bush Convention Center in the heart of downtown Midland is packed with Payton supporters. He's dressed in a dark gray suit with his hair slicked back. Before his mayoral run, he spent nearly two decades working as a pastor at a local megachurch. When he speaks, you can still hear the fervor. None of us would be here. None of us, if it wasn't for the foundations of those who have gone before us, all of us. I know everybody made fun of Hillary Clinton because she said it takes a village. We're all Republicans, so we couldn't agree with what she said. (laughs) But now that she's gone, just realize it does. The Bible calls it a community, calls it a body. We stand here today because of the foundation before us. We are the most important cities in the world. I know you think New York is. No, it's not. Just fly there, walk around a little bit, and you'll realize it's not. I know you think Washington, D.C. is the most important city in the world. The most important city in the world is the one that's driving the world economy. It's right here. The race for Midland mayor had been one of the city's most talked about elections in years. And for good reason. As you've heard throughout the podcast, the oil boom has brought unprecedented challenges to the Permian Basin, from the roads to the schools to crime and pollution. Even the region's biggest boosters admit that the quality of life for residents has suffered. And while there is some skepticism about the longevity of this boom, there are plenty of experts who predict that oil and gas production will continue to grow for years to come. To reap the rewards, cities across the region will have to make some major changes. To exemplify this kind of bold, visionary thinking, Peyton invokes a name you're no doubt familiar with by now, George Mitchell, often called the father of fracking. And as a people who will take risks, who else takes a risk to move out to West Texas? Who else takes a risk to poke holes in the ground that you still can't see what's underneath there and something great happens? And we stand on the shoulders of men like George Mitchell, who took 20 years to figure out what they could do so we could do what we do. George Mitchell is credited with innovating the fracking techniques that have turned the Permian Basin into the center of the energy universe. And Peyton is right. Without George Mitchell, the region would likely be a very different place. But for those who know much about George's life, hearing Midland's new mayor invoke his name in this way is a little jolting. Peyton envisions a bright future for the Permian built on the riches that can come from fracking. But George Mitchell did not. He had a much more complicated relationship with the technology he helped to create. But that's a side of the story you don't hear so often in the Permian Basin. And I look forward to being a part of that with you. 
Thank you for being here. God bless you. You are dismissed. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown, a podcast about the historical boom playing out right now in the Permian Basin. Way back in episode three, we told you the story of how George Mitchell's company innovated fracking in the late 1990s. In this episode, we take a closer look at the life of George Mitchell. He's arguably one of the most important figures of the last century. No old man since John D. Rockefeller has had a greater impact. We consider what his legacy says about the future of energy and the planet. I was helped this week by reporter Mitch Borden, one of our friends at Marfa Public Radio. You'll hear Mitch's voice a time or two. This is episode 10, The Mitchell Paradox. George Mitchell wasn't your classic swaggering wildcatter. In fact, at first glance, he was kind of boring. When I first started doing the book, I wondered if if I was going to actually be able to have a book there. You know, is this, does this guy have enough of a personality to really carry it through? That's Lauren Steffi, a journalist who recently published a biography called George P. Mitchell, Fracking, Sustainability, and an Unorthodox Quest to Save the Planet. You might remember hearing from Lauren back in episode three. Lauren says that George was straight-laced compared to other Texas wildcatters. But the more Lauren learned about George, the more he realized that this bookish, mild-mannered man was actually fascinating. Um, but when you start looking into, you know, this intellectual curiosity that he had on so many fronts, it's really kind of captivating. I mean, he found so many things interesting, and when he found something interesting, he would just start, you know, putting resources towards it to, to see what he could do, which is really kind of not something you see a lot these days uh, in the business world. He could have had a private jet if he wanted it. He could have had a fancy yacht. Um, but instead, he put his money into you know solving really big problems, trying to understand really big issues, and, and thinking 50 years down the road, what's the world going to be like? How are we going to how are we going to solve the problem with with population growth on a, a planet of finite resources? Those are the things he spent his time thinking about, as opposed to you know how do I make my next million? That mindset grew in part from a difficult childhood. His parents, Mike and Katina, were Greek immigrants. Both were illiterate. Before making their way to America, Mike had been a goat herder in Greece. His father had actually emigrated from Greece uh, when he was about uh, 19 years old and um, uh, came uh, into New York and actually went to work for the railroads. Uh, his name was Sava Paraskevopoulos. And um, so you wonder, well, how did, how did this Greek family get, you know, the name Mitchell? Uh, he was working on the railroad, and there's several variations of this story, but the gist of it is he, he went to get his first paycheck. The paymaster asked his name, and he said, Sava Paraskevopoulos. And the paymaster was like, no, I can't say it, I can't spell it, and if you don't do something, I'm going to fire you. And uh, so he said, well, what's your name? And the guy said, well, my name's Mike Mitchell. And he's like, hey, that's my name too. What a coincidence. With his newly adopted name, Mike and Katina moved to Galveston, Texas. The city is located on a barrier island in the Gulf Coast, about an hour south of Houston. George was born there in 1919, the same year Prohibition was passed. He was the third of four kids. At the time, Galveston was still recovering from the Great Storm of 1900, a hurricane that remains the deadliest natural disaster in American history. It had also developed a reputation for being a rowdy port town. This was kind of the wild, you know, rough and tumble days of Galveston. It was known as the Free State of Galveston, 
gambling, prostitution, and organized crime flourished. In fact, Galveston was a lot like the oil patch boomtowns of that era. During Prohibition, it became a haven for rum runners. Ships loaded with liquor from Caribbean ports would sneak into unpatrolled piers along Galveston Bay. Two Sicilian brothers named Sam and Rosario Masio were among the most notorious mobsters of their time. They ran their illicit empire from Galveston. Their infamous lounge, the Balinese Room, attracted well-heeled patrons like Frank Sinatra, Howard Hughes, and plenty of old barons. So the Maceos were, were a couple of Sicilian immigrants who came to Galveston in the early 1900s, about the same time Mike did, and they started out uh, as barbers. Um, in fact, they, they cut the, the Mitchell boys' hair, Sam Maceo cut their hair uh, at, at Murdoch's Pier. And they just uh, grew to a lot of influence. They, they ran uh, some nightclubs and eventually the, the Balinese Ballroom, which is a famous uh, site. It's not there anymore. It was wiped out in Hurricane Ike. But uh, if you're a ZZ Top fan, they wrote a song about it. The Masios were eventually busted by the Texas Rangers in the 50s, but at the time, they were community heroes. They donated money to build churches and passed out presents at Christmas. Mike Mitchell got to know the Masios well, and he was a regular presence in their gambling parlors. Though he was uneducated, Mike was resourceful and charismatic. He was, he was really a character. I mean, he kind of got by on his wits. Uh, he had never had any formal schooling, um, but he, he started a clothes pressing business and, and, you know, kind of did little, you know, had little businesses going uh, here and there to make money. And he, he was a very likable guy, and he knew a lot of people in town, um, including a lot of lawyers and bankers. Still, the family was often barely scraping by. He was not well off. I mean, um, you know, they, they sort of got by, but it was, it was always a struggle. And I, and I think that growing up as a child, he was very aware of the financial struggles of the family. I mean, you know, he would oftentimes get up when he was, when he was eight or nine years old. He would get up and go to the, the seawall and catch some fish and bring them home, give them to his mom. And then she would, you know, that's, that would be dinner. And then he'd, he'd go off to school. And if you're catching fish for dinner uh, before you go to school, you're probably pretty tuned into the fact that, that, you know, maybe there's not any food in the fridge, right? George wasn't like his gregarious father. He tended to keep to himself. The legend goes that he had read all the books in the city library by the time he was 14. But he also spent a lot of time outside, exploring the islands, lagoons, and beaches. And also, when he was a child, he told all of us that at one point he wanted to be an astronomer. He just would look up at the stars and wonder what is going on out there. That's Meredith Dreis, the second oldest of Mitchell's 10 children. She remembers her father as a loving but perplexing figure. He was uh, kind of like a Mr. Magoo around the house. And one time, really, this is a crazy story, but we were talking about dark energy and, um, and some astronomy subjects. I said, Dad, why are you interested in dark energy? And he said, well, if we can figure out what it is, we can harness it for energy. And I thought, oh my gosh, Dad, you're just out of, you're out of your mind. <laughs> but that's the way he thought. He was always like, well, what is this? And let's see if we can use it. It can be an alternative to fossil fuels. When George was 13, tragedy struck. His mother passed away after suffering a sudden stroke. So uh, after his mother died, uh, you know, the, the, the two older boys, Johnny and Chrissy, were old enough they could kind of fend for themselves. But George and, and his sister Maria were still pretty young, and, and Mike 
you know, wasn't really prepared to, to care for two little kids by himself. And he was also, soon after that, he was hit by a car and broke his leg, supposedly in 22 places, maybe not quite that many, but uh, that's the way he tells the story. George went to live with an aunt and uncle on the mainland in a tiny town outside of Houston called Dickinson. His younger sister, Maria, was sent away to live with relatives in San Antonio. Here's his daughter, Meredith, again. And I think that affected them just terribly because the family was divided at that point. And he went to live with an aunt and uncle. And his younger sister, my aunt, Aunt Maria, went and lived with another set of um, aunts and uncles. And, and it just really broke up the family at that point. And I don't think he ever quite recovered from that, that grief, frankly. In a letter to his sister, Maria, a few years later, George wrote, Words cannot describe the feeling I have in me now. I, too, feel the longing for a mother, someone I can go to, some place I can call home. Keeping family close would become a driving factor for the rest of George's life. And even after the death of his mother, her influence on George was profound. She wanted him to become a doctor, so... He, he actually, he graduated from high school early. Uh, he was 16 years old and he applied to Rice and got accepted. Um, but they told him, you know, you're, you're too young. You, you need to take a year and, and grow up a little bit and then come back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. George took the year as an opportunity to see a bit more of the world. He went east to Louisiana to live with his older brother, Johnny. Johnny was working on rigs in the swampy Gulf Coast oil fields at the time. And it was there that George got his first taste of the patch, working as a roustabout, moving pipe and doing grunt work. And just, you know, fell in love with the oil business. And he started thinking about medical school. He'd also uh, always had a love of astronomy, but he... I think, you know, that that childhood, the financial hardships of his childhood really kind of made him focus on how do I make a living? And he, he always said he, he decided to go, go into oil and gas because he wanted to be in a field where he could, he could earn some money. At the end of the year, Mitchell decided not to enroll at Rice after all. Instead, he went to Texas A&M to become an Aggie. There, he studied geology and was part of the first wave of true petroleum engineers. Though rockhounds had been sniffing for crude for over a century, Finding and extracting oil was just becoming its own academic field of study. George was the top of his class. He also served as a cadet in the school's military corps and played on the tennis team. But he was constantly racked with worry over money. 
it was a constant struggle. He was always threatened with, with being kicked out because he couldn't pay his bills. He would call his dad and he'd send his dad his grades and he'd say, you know, dad, I'm really, they're about to kick me out. I need, I need, you know, $40 or whatever, or $25. And um, so his father would go and fi- go to Sam Maceo and he would say, you know, look, my son's at the top of his class, but he's going to get kicked out. He needs some help. Can you give me a hundred dollars? And Sam would give Mike a hundred dollars and Mike could send 50 on to George and keep 50 for himself. After trying to make money in a variety of ways, from selling candy to operating his own laundry business, he finally hit on a successful scheme his senior year. He started selling um, embossed stationery, which the, he realized the freshmen would buy no matter what price he put on it because they would write they were they were homesick and they would write their girlfriends back home about how much they missed them, and so he was selling this stationery. It turned into kind of a booming business. He started making about three hundred bucks a month selling stationery. So from then on, his money problems got a lot better. The stationery business became the first in a long line of profitable enterprises for George. He graduated in 1940 and spent the next four years serving in the Army Corps of Engineers during World War II. After the war ended, he moved to Houston to work in oil. It was a good time to be striking into the business. The decade following the war was the heyday of the Texas wool man. All across the state, newly rich wildcatters were building temples of wealth, from art museums to lavish hotels, and Houston was the booming financial capital of the industry. This was a time when old men were putting tigers in their backyards and steamboats in their swimming pools as stunts. There were several outsized personalities in Houston, but there were a few in particular who came to embody the stereotype of the wildcatter often found strutting through books, TV, and film. One was Glenn McCarthy, the hard-drinking old man who inspired the character Jet Rink in Giant. McCarthy poured a ton of his own money into a massive new hotel outside of downtown Houston. The opening of the Shamrock Hotel in 1949 is still considered by many Houstonians to be the biggest social event in the city's history. McCarthy had it decorated in 63 shades of green as an homage to his native Ireland. But not everyone was impressed. When famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright visited, he reportedly pointed at the lobby ceiling and said to one of his apprentices, that young man is an example of the effects of venereal disease on architecture. Of course, McCarthy wasn't the only big name in town. There was also Red Smith. He was very wealthy, very well known, and he actually helped bring the Colt 45s to Houston. They became the Astros, and he actually had a hand in building the Astrodome, helping get that process started. The Astrodome would become known as the eighth wonder of the world. The shape of things to come in our national sport as the baseball season gets underway. The spanking new Astrodome is the new $31 million home of the Houston Astros, a domed stadium that holds nearly 50000 for a baseball game and more for conventions and meetings. Mitchell didn't have the personality to match some of the other old men in the city. He was, in fact, quite the opposite. He was kind of quiet, almost shy in a lot of cases. But it became clear right away that he had a knack for reading rock and sniffing out oil. What you see early on in his career is that a lot of big names in the business, guys like Gene McCarthy, Red Smith, they learned pretty quickly, this guy can find oil. At one point, Red Smith had an iffy prospect in the Texas panhandle, and he wasn't quite sure what to make of it. So he kind of 
farmed it out to some young geologists just to see what they would think. And most of them said, oh, don't bother. It's going to be a dry hole. But George said, no, I think you should drill. I think you should drill, you know, this spot or whatever. And so he did. And, and it turned out to be a pretty significant find. And, and so from that moment on, Red Smith was like, OK, I want you looking at, at my stuff. George and his brother Johnny eventually decided to start their own business together. And Smith became one of their biggest investors. That company later grew into the Mitchell Energy and Development Corporation. While other oil men partied at McCarthy's Shamrock Hotel, George would spend his nights poring over drilling logs, looking for potential strikes. He'd pass those finds on to his brother, Johnny, who was a lot like their father, charismatic and outgoing. Johnny would head down to the Espersons Building's drugstore, a hub for oil men. Under thick clouds of smoke and over countless cups of black coffee, Johnny built their fledgling company one handshake at a time. The brothers' business was touch and go for a while. Here's George describing it years later to the Houston Oral History Project. If we made a well, we'd go to the bank and borrow some money against it. If we'd go to dry hole, we'd just sit back and cry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a tough business. His big break came from a Chicago bookie in the early 50s who claimed to have a hot deal. George was skeptical, but agreed to take a look. It turned out that what the bookie had was a collection of seemingly worthless leases near Fort Worth. And so uh, George looked at it, and there had been 13 dry holes drilled on it. In fact, it had kind of been known in the area as the frustration fields. There was a, a landowner there named Hughes, um, and he really believed that there was oil under his land, but nobody could find it. And um, so he kept telling them, just keep drilling, boys, you'll find it, you know, and they never did. And so George looked at it and he realized that, that or he was pretty sure that they had actually missed it, that they drilled right through the deposit, right through the gas uh, uh, deposits and, and they were drilling too deep, basically. They reopened those 13 wells and George turned out to be right. Ten of them produced. In fact, they're still producing natural gas to this day. That was their big find. And once they realized what they had, they, they had about 300 acres that they had leased with that project. And they immediately went out and leased up, I think it was 300,000 acres. So they, they took this huge chunk of land um, before anybody really knew what was going on, which is, of course, what you do uh, to get a good price. And so that really became the crown jewel of the company that, that carried them through the, the 1990s. At the time, natural gas wasn't worth much. But George saw its potential. He predicted it would become the fuel of the future. He struck a deal with a natural gas pipeline company, which was selling gas to Chicago for heating. Because Chicago was such a huge market, the company needed a major guaranteed supply. George could promise them that, and in return, he fetched a high price for the gas. So he was selling this gas to Chicago at above market prices, and it was a 30-year contract or something like that. So he locked in these, these, you know, really high prices for a very long time. And then, because he had his own gas plant, he would strip out a lot of these byproducts, you know, ethane and things like that, and sell them to chemical companies on, on the Gulf Coast uh, near Houston. So he, he really kind of, you know, maximized what you could do with this one property. This deal was the bedrock for all of George's future success. Lauren calls it Mitchell Energy's ATM. As you might remember from episode three, it was there that the Mitchell engineers spent almost 20 years trying to crack the code of how to use fracking to open up shell formations. When they finally succeeded in 1998, 
that same region that was once called the Frustration Fields became known as the prolific Barnett Shale. It's one of the largest natural gas deposits in the United States. And it's in large part why, in 2002, George was able to sell his company for over $3 billion. But where other oil and gas tycoons might have immediately jumped into their next big money venture, George went in a different direction. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. When President Kennedy gave his famous moonshot speech in 1962, he was standing inside a packed stadium at Rice University, smack dab in the middle of Houston, George Mitchell's adopted hometown. I don't know if George was there that day, but throughout the 60s, as NASA was broadcasting the first pictures from the Apollo missions of what Earth looked like from outer space, people the world over began to think about sustainability with a newfound urgency. Beautiful view. Isn't that something? Magnificent sight out here. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Seeing the planet from that distant vantage inspired people, including George. He began attending the Aspen Institute, an international gathering for the wealthy and powerful to debate solutions to the world's biggest problems, sort of like a proto-TED conference, only more elite. The story goes that while in Aspen, he befriended the famous inventor and futurist Buckminster Fuller. George had many famous friends throughout his life, from Jimmy Carter to Stephen Hawking, but Fuller's influence might have loomed largest. Fuller is probably best known for inventing geodesic domes and coining the term Spaceship Earth, which inspired the golf ball-looking sphere at Epcot in Disney World. Anchored by an 18-story sphere called Spaceship Earth, Epcot's futuristic pavilions display the neon and laser technology of tomorrow. Spaceship Earth was Fuller's vision for the kind of comprehensive global planning needed to make sure Earth's rapidly growing population could live comfortably without destroying our most essential ecosystems. Fuller was an optimist. He believed humanity could do it, but it was going to take a massive, coordinated effort to pull it off. George became convinced of the same thing. In the 60s, George decided to launch his own mini Spaceship Earth experiment by attempting to create a sustainable community outside of Houston called the Woodlands. To lead the project, he hired a leading environmental designer from the University of Pennsylvania. He looked at everything from, um, you know, flooding issues, drainage. Uh, he, he studied all the different species of trees, uh, animal life. You know, how do, we, how do we build a city with as little impact as possible? And so, you know, they would, for example, study the soils. And where the soils were more porous, those would be the residential neighborhoods. And where you had the harder soils, those would be the commercial areas, you know, because that would minimize runoff. And, you know, a lot, just, just a million little details like that. Um, but it was really, uh, it became a, a quite a, an undertaking, obviously, but something that, that George was very, very committed to. He wound up calling the Woodlands his 11th child. 
There were some employees at his energy company that grew concerned by the amount of money George was diverting into his suburb. What happened was Mitchell Energy would, would be generating, you know, all these profits, and George was basically taking them and funneling them all into the woodlands. So, you know, the energy guys were getting a little frustrated because they're like, we're making all this money, and you're putting it in this real estate deal that, you know, w- what's happening with this? They didn't quite understand it. George moved the company's headquarters there, and today... It's home to many of Houston's energy executives. Though George didn't quite achieve the utopia he dreamed of, where people of all social classes lived in harmony, the Woodlands did become a global model for sustainable suburbs. In 1978, George and his wife created the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, which they used to support programs to preserve land and limit the impacts of oil and gas drilling. Since it began, the foundation has given away over $750 million of the family's personal fortune. George's daughter, Meredith, ran the Mitchell Foundation for some two decades. When she stepped down in 2011, George's granddaughter, Catherine Lorenz, took over. When I called her, Catherine told me that George was constantly evangelizing about whatever big idea had last piqued his interest. I mean, I remember every time I would see him throughout college and afterward, he would hand me a book, like whatever the book was he was reading. Because you got to read this book about sustainability or about the planet or, you know, I mean, it was, there was always some talk when I saw him always was about, you know, the environment and, and, and he, he would always say, you know, he'd buy literally like 200 books of whatever that book was and mail them to all of his friends, especially those in leadership positions at companies. So I would remember, you know, going to visit and seeing these boxes of these books in his car um, that he was sending around the world and give me five. got to give them to all your friends, too. And, um, and, and that you know, this wasn't just one book. It was kind of whatever the, the book was that he was into at the moment, talking about sustainability and the planet and the need to take care of it. When George first began trying to crack the code on fracking in the 80s, he surely knew it had the potential to make him and his company a lot of money. But he also believed that if we could access the vast reservoirs of natural gas trapped in shale, it could benefit the planet. One of the things that George Mitchell really believed is that that if we're going to have, you know, a growing population, we not only have to have environmental sustainability, we have to have economic sustainability. We have to find a way to, you know, provide for all these people, uh, you know, using these finite, finite resources. And so, you know, the reason he believed natural gas was the fuel of the future was because sooner or later we're going to need a cleaner fuel than oil or coal or whatever. And so while he was not he didn't really see renewables taking off uh, in his lifetime. He definitely believed that they should. He, he, he said in the 1990s, we need alternatives, but they're too expensive. We're going to have to do something. So he saw natural gas as a way of getting there. In some ways, George has been proven right. Natural gas produces about half the carbon dioxide as coal for a comparable price. Since the fracking boom, the rise of natural gas has led to a major decline in the use of coal. And because of that, U.S. carbon emissions recently hit a 25-year low. The boom has also led to lower energy costs for consumers, to a tune of some $2,000 per household. And it's been a boon for some parts of the economy, with an estimated 4 million jobs tied to fracking. But no one could have predicted just how much fracking would take off. In 2000, there were 26,000 gas wells in the entire U.S., 15 years later, there were more than 300,000 gas wells. 
Today, some 60% of all U.S. crude oil comes from fracked wells. But the record-breaking levels of production comes at a cost. Fracking requires far more resources than a conventional well, especially water, which is already a scarce commodity in West Texas. A fracked well might require between two and eight million gallons of water. And in the Permian, a single fracked well can require 1,200 truckloads of sand, water, and equipment. And even natural gas, Mitchell's fuel of the future, has a downside. While natural gas produces less carbon emissions, it also contains methane, a potent greenhouse gas. When companies burn off natural gas using flares or allow wells to leak methane, then the climate advantages of natural gas are wiped out. When fracking really started to take off in the early 2000s, Lauren says it didn't take long for George to see how the industry was going to exploit the technology. He knew. I mean, he, he told his son-in-law, you know, these cowboys are going to ruin everything. You know, he knew what the business was like and he knew that people were going to were going to basically abuse this. And, you know, as you see the, the footprint from fracking growing, you know, as the number of wells increases and, and whatnot, um, you know, I think he would have become increasingly concerned about that. The earthquake issue, um, the, the methane leaks. But he would also say these are fixable problems, right? We can solve this. We need to not rather than just abandon the whole process, we need to find a better way of doing it. In 2012, the year before his death, George famously co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post with now presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg. The two men called on drilling companies to be more socially conscious and asked the government to put stricter regulations on fracking. They wrote, Mostly it's the loud voices at the extremes who are dominating the debate. Those who want either no fracking or no additional regulation of it. As usual, the voices in the sensible center are getting drowned out, with serious repercussions for our country's future. The rapid expansion of fracking has invited legitimate concerns about its impact on water, air, and climate, concerns the industry has attempted to gloss over. In fact, he used to admonish not just other oil executives, but business leaders in general, that they weren't thinking enough about the importance of their role in the community and, and the sort of, you know, that he believed that there were a lot of big problems that only business could solve. George's daughter, Meredith, actually lives part-time in West Texas, in the town of Marfa. She's watched the boom unfold in the Permian Basin over the past decade. Mitch spoke to her recently at Marfa Public Radio. I think he, my father would be horrified by the what's going on at the Permian Basin because a lot of it is just absolutely unnecessary. It, it's just, it feels to me, just looking and hearing about it, that it's just a greed gone wild. And I'm not even sure we need all that oil and gas right now, especially the gas and fracking that's going on. And we've ruined the environment. And I think my father would be horrified by it, frankly. How do you react to that, that people who are so pro-drilling right now and fracking in the Permian would invoke your father's name as someone who helped them get to where they are today? It's kind of, uh, for me, it's kind of embarrassing, frankly. And I feel like that they, the people who invoke his name, don't really quite understand what he was all about. And I think he would not like it either if he were alive. George P. Mitchell, chairman of the board and the president of the Mitchell Energy and Development Corporation. 
1984, George and his wife Cynthia attended an honorary dinner where George was presented with the Horatio Alger Award. The annual award recognizes a figure that embodies the classic rags-to-riches story. Other inductees have included Buzz Aldrin, Maya Angelou, and Reba McIntyre. The typically reserved George was in a jovial mood that night. He even cracked a joke to start things off. I noticed the award, uh, they don't have any hair on this head. <laughs> so you people with hair, you shouldn't get one. <laughs> well, my wife just reminded me that uh, before I met her, I was nothing. And since I met her, I did pretty well. So I want to give her a thanks. He could have talked about anything. Most attendees probably expected him to talk about his accomplishments in oil and gas. Instead, he sounded a lot like his old friend Buckminster Fuller. This country, we have the economic environment in which to, the pursuit of success can really be honorable and enjoyable game. And if we play the game, preferably everybody wins. By properly, and preferably, I mean that we must work hard and be fair. We must be compassionate and decent. And we must return to society as much as or more than we got out of it. It's clear that George wanted to leave a legacy beyond being known as the father of fracking. But it's less clear what his legacy actually is. In George's later years, after his wife Cynthia died in 2009, he left the woodlands and moved back to his boyhood town of Galveston. He lived for a time in the Tremont House, a hotel that he and Cynthia had bought in the early 80s as part of a historic preservation program. The Tremont continued to operate as a working hotel even as George lived there. You know, they had reserve tables in the restaurant and in the lobby, and he would come down from his suite and, and just sort of sit there in the lobby. And, uh, you know, the, the one time I was there, former Governor Mark White just happened to be coming through Galveston and came up and said hello to him, and they chatted for a few minutes. That's Russell Gold, a senior energy reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Russell is the author of two books, including The Boom, How Fracking Ignited the American Energy Revolution and Changed the World. Russell met George at the hotel a few years before George died. You know, he was kind of enjoying the, uh, the, the sunset of his life, uh, just kind of holding court uh, in, in the lobby of the Tremont Hotel in downtown Galveston. Um, and it wasn't just governors, you know, anyone who came by, you know, he would try to engage with them and talk with them. And he would, sitting there in his, uh, uh, he had a little um, motorized uh, wheelchair of sorts. And I remember it had a bumper sticker on it uh, say, informing everyone that he was, uh, he was naggy. Um, there were certain things he would engage with, certain stories he would love to tell. Uh, but there were certain things when you really kind of tried to drill down and try to understand a little bit about what he thought of his legacy and, and uh, unleashing so much new oil and gas drilling in the United States and elsewhere uh, that he didn't want to engage with. Um, he, my sense was he had closed the book on that and, and didn't want to talk about it anymore. This is part of what came to be known as the Mitchell Paradox. Here's Lauren Steffi. You know, his son Todd uh, actually dubbed it the Mitchell Paradox. Um, and, and, and while nobody remembers George actually talking about it, uh, in fact, even when he was asked about it, he would just kind of wouldn't answer. Um. <laughs> he had two parts of his life. He had the business part. He had the Mitchell Energy part where he was drilling gas 
and figuring out ways to drill gas. And then he had this other part. And, and it wasn't just it wasn't just in, in oil and gas. I mean, he w- here was someone who was genuinely worried about overpopulation and he had 10 kids. Um, you know, it, it there were just complexities to his life that, that at the end of the day, you, you just you couldn't resolve. George's daughter, Meredith, remembers giving him a hard time when he'd fret about the planet's growing population. Oh, yeah. We always teased him about that. <laughs> I said, what are you doing talking about this, Dad? You had 10 kids. He said, yeah, I know. Oh, I'm not going to worry about that. He just said, it's true. George's life is filled with all sorts of contradictions. Plenty of people have pointed out that George's pleas for more regulation and more corporate responsibility really only intensified after he'd sold his business and after he'd made his billions. And that that concern about the environment uh, did not spill over into his company. And he did not create a company, ultimately, an oil and gas company, that, that showed us a new way of both getting oil and gas out of the ground while being an environmental steward. He showed us a new way to get oil and gas out of the ground, and it really is left to, to the current generation and to new people to figure out how to be an environmental steward at the same time. In the mid-90s, George's own company was marred in lawsuits over questionable drilling practices and water contamination. At one point, Mitchell Energy and Development lost a lawsuit that would have cost the company over $200 million. The case was later appealed and thrown out by the Texas Supreme Court, but Russell says that the state still found that Mitchell Energy had, quote, deliberately misreported the way the company was building their wells. It stained his reputation. I have a lot of admiration for George Mitchell. Um, His legacy is one of being a, a stubborn inventor and someone who was willing to keep trying to do something because he just had a a deep-seated belief that he'd be able to figure out how to open up these incredibly thick rocks. And, you know, that's that's an incredible legacy. And maybe, you know, is it fair to also ask him to to have a second legacy of of being an environmental steward and figuring out how to do oil and gas uh, production in an environmentally um, faithful way for the future generations? That might be too much to ask of any one person. Uh, He certainly failed in that. But Lauren, on the other hand, believes George's legacy was much bigger than fracking. So I think that that ultimately when you you take all of these things, you know, fracking, sustainability, you know, the the big science stuff, you you know, what you see, his real legacy is a celebration of big ideas. Um, You know, he was a, a primary funder early on of the Giant Magellan Telescope which, you know, when it comes online in a few years, you know, might just detect, you know, intelligent life in the universe, which would be kind of an interesting way to cap a, a really unusual uh, legacy. So, <laughs> Here's George's granddaughter, Catherine. He literally said 10 times every time you see him for the last 20 years of his life, if you can't make the world work with 6 billion people, how are you going to make it with 9 billion people? And what are you going to do about it? And he would always add that, like, and what are you going to do about it? George believed the world needed to eventually move away from oil. Instead, his technology has helped make America into the largest oil-producing country in the world. Despite this, Lauren Steffi says George would have been undaunted if he were still around. 
I think he, he was always an undying optimist. I mean, that's kind of what drove him forward was, you know, um, he didn't believe in some sort of dystopian future. I mean, he really believed we were going to figure all this out. And in fact, no less than Stephen Hawking uh, at his memorial service said, you know, not many people can say they changed the world, but George Mitchell was one of them. So, uh, you know, that's from a guy who knows, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Next week, on the final episode of Boomtown, we look back on our journey and look ahead to what the future might hold for the Permian Basin. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit and co-reported by Leif Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Paik Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. This episode was made with help from the crew at Marfa Public Radio. Thanks again to Mitch Borden for his work reporting and co-writing this episode. If you're outside of West Texas, you can follow them at marfapublicradio.org. Special thanks to the Houston Public Library, Houston Metropolitan Research Center, and the Horatio Alger Association for allowing us to use recordings of George Mitchell. The full interview and other talks with influential Texans can be found on the Houston Public Library Digital Archive. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Boomtown is a episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com slash boomtown for more on the story. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.